thrilled that you're here this evening. Open your Bibles up, if you would, to John chapter uh, 6. I want to share with you uh, out of this chapter, and again, we was here this last evening. I want to focus in tonight on verses uh, 12 and 13. And I would like for you to, if you'd be willing, uh, to mark in your Bibles the book of Exodus, chapter 12, which is the Passover scene, uh, the first Passover. But I want to focus in this evening on uh, John chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, and want you to mark for reference uh, Exodus chapter 12. There are a number of, of crucial aspects uh, of, the new co- uh, of the new covenant in which you know, we live as Christians um, that are absolutely different than the old covenant. Okay, that's obvious. But there are a number of things that aren't, I've been finding that aren't so much radically different from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. They're just expanded. Okay? Well, uh, for instance, we really, I've been really finding this uh, in John chapter 5, and this was really aggressive, uh, I guess because I haven't run into this too much in my Christian experience, is that the relationship that God desired to have with us, He began in the Old Covenant, and we begin to see traces of that for instance, as we saw in John chapter 5, in the life of Moses, uh, verses 45 to 47 of John chapter 5, and the intimacy that he shared with, with God, how that has been expanded in the life of Christ. It's just been overboard, okay? So it began, it began when God began in the Old Covenant, he expanded in the New Covenant. We begin to find a lot of that. I've really been seeing some of that here in John chapter 6, that... What you have going on in John chapter 6, and really it's what we want to deal with this evening in verses 12 and 13, is that there is this God that, again, in their culture, and, and especially this setting to the Jewish people, who, see, my perspective was, I guess to say it like this, is I always viewed this God who was at the temple or was at a holy place and was separated from or detached from the people all year round except when they went there to worship. But I'm coming to some conclusions that that really wasn't so. There were specific times of celebration and worship. Okay? It was very structured, very detailed, and God was present. And he had a definite place. You could go down to the temple, and you walked into the temple, and you couldn't get there, but there was a place called the Holy of Holies, and that's where God would reside. You didn't go in there. Okay? It was a dangerous thing. In fact, only one person went in there, and for that matter, only once a year. He wasn't free to walk in anytime he want and just kind of hang out. Okay? He was only allowed back there one time of year. That was the high priest. And even then, he would tie a rope around his waist. That way, in case he messed up, did something out of character and died, see, who's going to go in and get him? <laughs> have to hang out in there for a year till the next guy goes in next year. So they just had the rope. They just yank him out from underneath the curtain. And there was a curtain that separated that. Okay? So there was a distinct, hey, understanding that, yes, God had a, had a place and, hey, he was there. But see, the idea was, is he was not detached from the people. I began to go through and look at the life of Jesus, who lived in the old covenant hour. He's the fulfillment. He brings in and ushers in the new covenant. But see, he has this 24 hours a day type of relationship with God. Okay? Again, this is uh, almost in a transition time from Old Covenant to New Covenant. It's really difficult to pinpoint uh, where that Old Covenant ended and the New Covenant began. And certainly we know where that, that, those details are. But um, you see Jesus and he turns some of the most casual situations 
into opportunities where God is clearly displayed. Okay, are you with me on that? Really, really crucial. And I guess the point that I'm coming to is, it seems like as Christians today, and I don't think this is helpful, we sometimes seem to trap God inside the church. Okay? He's here. Uh, we meet him here on Sunday. We give him some money. We tell him, great, uh, that he's wonderful. We sing to him. We listen to him. And then uh, we're out of here. Uh, we drive by Wednesday. We'll wave at him. Hey, see you on Sunday. And uh, we kind of, you know, God is here. And maybe uh, there's a step up from that. We take him home with us. And we talk to him in the morning before we go to work. We have our five-minute uh, prayer time and devotional reading. And then we're out the door. See, that's not the impression that I'm getting from the New Testament. See, the impression that I'm getting with the, uh, from the New Testament, uh, and again, it began in the Old Covenant, but it's expanded in the New Testament, the New Covenant hour, is that there is to be this, you know, this all-day walking with, you with me? This all-day walking with intimate, tight relationship with the Father. Um, that he's not just, see, God just doesn't interact with me when I'm here. God interacts with me when I'm out there. I don't know how many evangelists you know or how many um, preachers you know who uh, talk about their call. My call to preach did not happen in a church. Now, I found this interesting, especially in light of our passage. I begin to go back, and I really begin to look, and there is something specific about the body of Christ coming together in which God moves and works and is powerful and special, sure. But as I begin to go back and look at some of the most crucial aspects of my life, some of the most defining times in my life, they did not happen in church. One of the most revolutionary times in my life was an internship that I did in 1997. Uh, It was the the all-day experience of Christ in my life that radically changed me. I read a book at the beginning of my Christian experience uh, when I was uh, in in college uh, written by a, a monk named Brother Lawrence, called Practicing the Presence of God. And it was about this monk who just lived all day, every day, in the presence of God, no matter what he did. He was a, he was a cook, but he was often known in the kitchen for just, at any point, banging pots and pans together and running around the kitchen shouting and praising God and experiencing him in the kitchen. So it was, it was outside of the confines of the traditional you know, church walls where God was experienced. I affirm that in my, in my walk. Because my call to preach did not take place inside a church building. It took place on a toilet in Sears department store. Okay? Now, I probably should explain that. Okay? It was. It was, uh, it was, it was a sacred moment, if I can talk about it that way. I was working all night at Sears uh, before I went to college, and they were remodeling this, uh, the whole other side of Sears. Well, the bathroom was tore up, completely tore up. And... Um, on break times, I was over by that area, remodeling that area. And during break times, everybody would go outside and smoke. And I was trying to quit smoking at that time. And so I would go out there, and I'd just hang out in the bathroom. It was broken down. Nothing worked. All the lights were on. There's dust everywhere. And I would go back in the back stall and sit on the back toilet, which wasn't even put together yet, put my feet up on the door, and I'd read my Bible for 35 minutes. And uh, God, over those four months while I was working at Sears, did phenomenal things in my life in those kinds of settings, okay, in those types of settings. And I remember I was back there one evening, it was about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I ran across 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, and God spoke to me. Oh, it's in that passage where Paul is talking about his preaching, his call to preach. He says, when I preach, I cannot boast, for I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me okay, if I do not preach the gospel. And I, that, that was the... 
that was the most phenomenal bathroom experience of my entire life, <laughs> okay? And uh, it was my call to preach, and I knew at that moment, and I accepted it. Um, I look back at some of the most significant times in my life, and it was in those kinds of settings, okay? Wouldn't it be something, just think about this, wouldn't it be something if you could experience, experience him on a level outside the church like you do inside the church? I mean, wouldn't it be absolutely phenomenal if you could experience the truth of him revealing himself at your job the way you do at a church gathering? That somehow maybe your Monday mornings as you get up for work could be the same thing as your Sunday mornings as you get up to go to church. I don't know if that's taking it too far, but I want to bring you into our passage. John chapter 6, and I want to focus in on verses 12 through 13. I want to give you an idea that I'm finding in the text, and you can kind of decide for yourself, and we'll ask the Lord to speak to us. John chapter 6, verses 12 through 13, this is how it reads. It says, when, all, uh, uh, when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Read that one more time. Okay. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Father, we love you this evening. Bring us into, captivate us with your truth. We'll give you all the praise. And we ask it in the name of your son, Christ Jesus. Amen. I want to familiarize you just a little bit with what's taking place thus far in John chapter 6 because technically by the time you get to verse 12 the actual miracle and what took place at this scene is over with okay the basic bulk of what took place was from verses 1 down through verse 11 that was the miracle as we begin to look at last night uh, this is a significant scene the Passover scene um, there are a number of miracles obviously that Jesus uh, that Jesus uh, uh, performed that were significant and that were powerful, and that are referred to in the Gospels. But there are very few miracles that are talked about by all four Gospel writers. Okay? This is a significant miracle because it's talked about by all four Gospel writers. And it's not only talked about by all four Gospel writers, the significance of the details of the story are also talked about by all four Gospel writers. So this is a really significant uh, miracle. But there are some things that I begin to find as I uh, investigated and studied John chapter 6, uh, in John's account of the, uh, of the feeding of the 5,000, that was different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke and how they talked about the feeding of the 5,000, okay? Same miracle talked, in all four, uh, talked about in all four Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000, but what I found is there were four main differences, okay, from John's account versus Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account. I want to point those out to you. The first main difference I found, and we looked at it last night, is in verses 8 and 9. That's not true. <laughs> That's not true. Uh, it's actually in verses 5 and 6. And it's the testing of Philip. See, in the other Gospels, Jesus presents the, uh, to the disciples this huge problem of the, of the feeding of the 5,000. Hey, where are we going to get food for these people? But in John's account, he specifically addresses Philip. And this is what he says in verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now notice, he pinpoints Philip on this, which is, in my mind, crucial. And then he explains why he pinpoints Philip in verse 6. He asked this only to test him, which, get this now, it makes it very specific what the whole passage is about. This is a testing time. 
And of course, it's directed at Philip. And all that Jesus has been talking about, all that he's been, man, just trying to communicate to the disciples, of course, Philip in particular, in, verse, in, in chapters 1 through 5, the whole, uh, the whole lifestyle uh, of Jesus, which is the lifestyle of the Christian, to be person-centered, to be focused in on the person, living for the person. He's now testing Philip on this. See, are you going to rely on yourself, Philip, or are you going to rely on the person? So we talked about last night. That's different than the other four Gospels, okay? This, this account, John's account, is a testing time, and it's aimed at Philip, but certainly for all the disciples. The second difference from, this, uh, from John's account versus Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account is in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, they just gather five barley loaves and two small fish, okay? They just come up with this. In John's account, where do they get this from? A little boy. What's interesting, because see, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the little boy isn't there. It's only in John that you learn they stole this from some poor kid. Okay? They get it from him. It's his sack lunch, which is absolutely interesting, because see, the only resource the disciples had was a little boy's sack lunch. And Jesus uses that to meet the need. When it's, I don't know, again, how that strikes you, but see, you don't have to have much to be a Christian, if anything. You understand? Because it's not based upon what you could provide. It's not based upon your resource. It's based upon his resource. Second difference, really crucial. The third difference uh, is actually uh, down in verse uh, 11. And there's actually two differences here, the third and the fourth. The first difference that I want to look at with you is Jesus and his role in the miracle. Okay, the first difference was the testing time. Second difference is this little boy that shows up. The third difference that I want to look at with you is his role, Jesus, his role in this miracle. I find this really neat. In the other, in the other uh, uh, gospel accounts, Jesus breaks the bread, okay, and he hands it to his disciples, and they pass it among the 5,000. In this gospel, the disciples are sliced completely out of the picture, and Jesus himself distributes the bread to the people. Listen to this. Pick it up in verse uh, 11. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed. He did. And distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. Now again, is it likely, is it possible that Jesus himself passed out all of this by himself to 5,000 people? Well, (laughs) probably not. But the deal is, is John is making a statement. Again, see, what's the Passover about? See, what's this, what's this whole feeding of the 5,000 about? And the whole, the whole chapter is just, it reeks of the Passover idea. But see, the whole, the whole chapter, as has been the first five chapters, is focused on the person. So John is making a statement to us. You understand that this scene is all about Jesus and what he is doing for the people. It's not the, it's not the bread, it's not the fish, it's Jesus as he is meeting the needs of the people that's there. Okay, third difference. The last difference, and I think is the most significant, is in the term gave thanks. You'll like this, especially those of you who are the Greek scholars. Um, In all four gospel accounts, this is neat, in all four gospel accounts, Jesus takes the loaves, he breaks them, and he gives thanks. All four gospel accounts. I got interested in, uh, of course, the details. And as I begin to study this passage, I begin to find is that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's a word that's used, which we translate give thanks. And in John's account, it's a totally different word that we translate give thanks. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the word we, we translate give thanks is the word eulogos, which is where we get our word 
eulogy. A good word is what it is. Okay? It's a giving of thanks. Perfectly fine word. Matthew, Mark, and Luke use it. But John's word is different. John's word is the word Eucharisto, which is where we get our word, the Eucharist, which is the term we refer to as the communion or the Last Supper. Now, what's really interesting is by the time that John wrote, um, here's some background knowledge for you. They believe, most scholars believe, that John's gospel was the last gospel written in our New Testament. By the time this book was written, uh, all the other disciples more than likely have been martyred. John is the only one alive. Uh, It's written some 45 years after the other gospels have been written. It's written by and large even 20 to 30 years after all the other books uh, written by other authors in the New Testament have been written. So by the time this gospel is written, now hear this, by the time this gospel is written, you have an established church with traditions. Okay? In fact, some scholars even tell you that the, the recipients of this gospel in John's, underneath John's control, underneath his direction, are probably even second and third generation Christians. And so there is traditions that have been established. One of those traditions in the early church, and Paul writes about it all the time, it's talked about way before this book was written, is the Eucharist. It's the Lord's Supper. It's the communion. Now, what's interesting is, is in John's account, uh, you can't find the Last Supper scene. You can't find it. It's not in this. It's not in this book, they say. But what's interesting is, is when you get into chapter 6, what you find is the last supper scene is in this book. It's placed right here. It's just stripped of all the the traditions. You know one of the biggest dangers that I find with, uh, I guess, us church people? We get so used to the traditions that we miss the point of the traditions. We get so used to the service. You come in, you shake hands, you tell the pastor he looks wonderful, the wife he looks beautiful, and uh, you pat some people on the back, and you do those kinds of things, you know, hey, how are you doing? Great, this, that, and the other, wonderful. You sit down, and you begin to know what's going to take place. You know that uh, uh, the song leader's going to start the service, and we sing exactly three songs, or actually one song, and then the pastor gets up and says, "Well, we're glad to have you here, shake a couple hands, we sing exactly three more songs, then we take the offering, and the usher looks at you and stares at you and points at the ushering plate, and, goes, you know, and then uh, you go through that whole thing, and they finish the offertory, then there's a special and then the evangelist gets up and we listen to him forever, okay? We know the routines of the services, okay? What's interesting is, is you can get so caught up in the routines, you can get, have you ever been sitting in worship, singing a song, and you've sung the song so many times that you come to an awareness in the middle of the song that you have been thinking all along about the game that's on television at home? Your mouth has not stopped moving, your facial expressions haven't changed, you're singing, but all the while, your mind is 100 miles away. No, I didn't think you ever did that. But see, the idea is, but you begin to notice this, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but you begin to notice this in John's or in, in Paul's writings that the early church was already having trouble with the significance of the event, and they were getting all over the event. They're, see, they were into the event, but they were missing the reason for the event. Paul had to constantly, j- just taking our, 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 our topic, the Lord's Supper, see, Paul was constantly giving instruction with the Lord's Supper. Remember the group that was, was treating it as a meal and they were coming and eating and Paul had to say, hey, eat at home. This is about the person. This is about the person. So there's always, hey, there's always a side, uh, 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 kind of getting a sidetracked type of idea. Well, what, uh, what I propose to you uh, is that in John chapter 6, what John does 
is he uses words that they would have known, Eucharist. I mean, hey, that's a specific word that the tradition of the early church claimed for the Lord's Supper. It's a giving thanks. It's, it's, that, that's the term that they used for the Lord's Supper. And John uses that word. He sticks it in this passage and strips it of all the formal settings. He takes it out of, out of the context in which they normally would find that word. And all he leaves there is the concept. So they do not miss hey, what the idea of the Lord's Supper is about. The Lord's Supper is not about, well, is it just wine or is it grape juice? You know, it's really significant to me. It's not about that. Is it a wafer or is it bread? <laughs> Come on, man. It's not about that. See, we could talk about baptism. Is it immersing or sprinkling? I don't care. It's not about that. It's about the concept. You get what I'm saying? See, this, see, John strips it of all of that. And he brings in the passage and just leaves the concept. So there are four main differences in this passage. Now, by the, and you need to know that. You need to know what's taking place because verses 12 and 13 is really in response to the event after it's done. Okay? Verses 1 through 11 have already taken place. And this is the response to what's just been done. And Jesus gives some really interesting instructions. Now, if you put this in a practical way, it really almost doesn't fit in the passage. And we've made attempts and scholars have made attempts to, try, uh, 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 attempts to try to explain this. But I think it's really significant what Jesus does here. He tells them to gather the pieces that are left over. Very emphatic on that. Hey, you need to do this. It's important. Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. Are you with me? It's almost the idea that if you didn't gather the pieces, they would be wasted. So there was something very significant. Gather them. Hey, put them in baskets and don't let them be wasted. And he says this. Now, one of the things you need to know about John chapter 6 is that this is, and this is really surprising, is that this is a Passover time. I don't know if you're very familiar with the Passover or not, the Jewish Passover. Uh, probably most, uh, most individuals uh, in church today probably are not extremely familiar with the Passover and the customs and those sorts of things. That's why I had you mark Exodus chapter 12. I want to walk through it really briskly with you. But this is the Passover scene. By the, if you would just take one page in your Bible and go back to chapter 5, what you have is you have a feast here. Okay? You had a Passover back in chapter 2, which most scholars will tell you will be about a year and a half, maybe two years. It could be a year ago. But hey, it's, it's the Passover before you get to chapter 5 at least. And this is, we're not really sure which feast this is. It's one of the main three because Jesus is back down in Jerusalem. But it's not the Passover. And you come into chapter 6, verse 4, it tells you, the Jewish Passover was near. That word we translate near literally means imminent or at hand. In other words, it's right there. Now, what's really interesting, the Passover being really imminent or right there, you would associate it with Jesus going down to the temple. And by the time you come into chapter 7, you have another feast that's began. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. So there's been no celebration of the Feast of the Passover. So you're left with the conclusion, long story short, is that what's going on in chapter 6, this is the Passover celebration. Now again, I don't know how familiar you are with um, the Passover, but see, it was, it was dictated by God back in Exodus chapter 12 that they were to celebrate it in certain ways. And what you have recorded, what you have recorded in John chapter 6 is the Passover being celebrated, it's the Passover scene without all the details of the Passover, per se. I want to walk through this with you just really, really quickly. I want you to flip back with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 12. 
And I want to familiarize you because as you begin to get into chapter 6 and you learn that this is the Passover scene, you would expect all the things that are associated with the Passover. I mean, this is not hard to figure out. See, when I go to a graduation, I associate all the stuff that would normally go with graduation. Okay? Cap gown. Okay? Tons of people walking up. Someone always pulls a prank. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Okay? I, I associate things with graduation. You, know? you don't go to graduation and it's a truck pull. Okay? Trying to pick something that you would relate to. But the idea is, is that, uh, see, with the Passover scene, the Passover celebration in chapter 6, there's always things that are associated with the Passover that are not in chapter 6. Really found that interesting. Um, and again, you guys know the Passover. Uh, the Passover is uh, the final, uh, the final uh, sign that's given uh, to uh, both you know, uh, all of Egypt, the Pharaoh, even God's people. And there's really significant instructions. Begin at verse 1. I just want to briskly walk through this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month, now get this, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of the year. Now, this is significant because this, this Passover, you understand, you got to get this. To the Jews, the Passover was not casual, Okay. I don't know how to talk about that. It was not casual. I mean, it was life-changing. It was transforming. This event right here, God comes to Moses and Aaron and says, listen, this is going to change even your calendar, man. This is going to be the first month of your year from here on out. This is is formal. This is powerful. God is getting ready to act in a way that he's never acted before. This is powerful. This is significant, okay? He says that. This is going to be your first month. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, Each man is to take a lamb for his family. He's already given. He's already giving insight in how they're going to celebrate this thing. Okay? On the 10th day of this month, they're to take a lamb uh, into their house uh, for his family. One for each household. Verse 4. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people who are there. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with each person will eat. Now, do you get the details of this? I mean, he's down to, listen, how much you're going to eat? If you've got a guy who eats a lot, hey, you know, proportion, you know. It, it's really significant. So they bring this lamb into the household, and it's to stay there. Verse 5, the animal you choose, and it's just not any lamb. Listen how specific he gets. The animal you choose must be a year-old male without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Okay, sheep or goats. Take care of them until the 14th day. So this is interesting. This is some things that I kind of thought about. They're to take on the 10th day a lamb, one-year-old, without spot or blemish, a lamb or a goat, keep them in the house until the 14th day. And, well, you know what happens during that time. Uh, Little Sally and Junior, uh, they fall in love with it. They fight over who's going to get to sleep with it. Uh, They name it, you know. Um, it's, It's become the family pet, which is really bad by the time you get to the 14th day. And the idea is, some scholars will tell you there's significance to that, is that they grew fond to it, and it's, it, there's, significant in, it, 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 there's significance in the price that's paid, uh, that the lamb pays. And it, again, it's all imagery of Christ himself. Nonetheless, take care of them until the 14th day, verse 6, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs the same night. They are to eat of the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread uh, made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw, cooked, or cooked in water, but roasted over the fire. 
head, legs, and inner parts. Don't leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt. Okay? And again, this is a sign of, of, of running. Of, of, of a, they're eating it in haste. Now, get this. Do you see the details of this? This is not casual. This is formal. This is specific. Okay? Picking it up around verse 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt, and I won't go through this, but in verses 12 through 13, he tells what he's going to do that night as they're celebrating it, uh, or at least after they celebrate it, he's going to pass through. We know what takes place, uh, whoever didn't uh, celebrate the Passover. Verse 14, this is a day, listen to this, this is a day you are to commemorate. That word literally means remember. They are to, from this point on, to look back on that day and commemorate it. They're to uh, remember it. And this is how they're to commemorate it and remember it. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. This is significant. See, this is not something where they go back and go, oh, yeah, the Passover. Yeah, let me tell you about that. This is to be a formal commemoration. It's to be a formal remembrance of what took place here. Okay? You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Okay? Big time language here. For seven days you would eat bread without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses, for whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day to the seventh day must be cut off or uh, cut, cut off from Israel. Verse 16. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly, and another on the seventh day. Do not work at all during these days except to prepare the food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now you begin to go down through, and you begin to see that there is times... And celebrations, there's this day for that, there's another day for this. You, I mean, there's certain meat you need to eat, there's uh, or, or, or ways to prepare the meat, there's, uh, of course, a way you need to prepare the, the bread. And there, it's just a very, very specific, it's not casual. Are you getting what I'm talking about? This is, to be a, this is to be a festival that they are to celebrate in remembrance that, hey, God moved among us. One of the things I've been finding significant in the Old Testament is see when God moved among them, among them in powerful, obvious ways, as he declares it, they're to celebrate that. It was significant. It was special. Okay? That's the Passover. And even in Jesus' day, and you can leave that marked if you'd like. I'm going to leave mine marked because I'm going to refer to it. But even in Jesus' day, see, you were required by law. You were required by law to come back to the temple and celebrate this. Now, in chapter 6, this is the Passover. And I found it really interesting. Now, stick with me on this. I found it really interesting that in the Passover scene, as Jesus is, is uh, uh, of course, he's the lamb. Okay? That's, all over the, that's all over the chapter. He is the lamb. There's all kinds of details that this is, a, this is the Passover time. See, all the formalities that you find back in the Egypt account are missing here. Okay? All the formalities that you find back in the Egypt account are missing here. And as I begin to go through and I begin to compare the Egypt account over against or alongside of uh, the chapter 6 of John account, what I begin to find is there's really no similarities except for two. Okay? And they're really almost a little bit different, but conceptually they're present. Okay? There's two similarities for the, for the Passover account in Egypt to the Passover account here in John chapter 6. Okay? Stay with me. It's good stuff. We can get through the, the, uh, the initial stage of it. In chapter 6, I want you to again look at verses 12 and 13. Okay? And there is, there is two similarities. The similarities are, verse 12 says, When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, now listen to this, Gather the pieces that are left over. 
Okay? Now, there's been, again, there's, there's uh, suggestions on why Jesus does this. And it's the idea that, uh, um, you know, uh, there's, it's gathered over for the disciples to have so they can eat and, and you know, that, those kinds of explanations. But it's very, very stated plainly. It's, planted very, very sta- uh, uh, <laughs> it's stated very, very plainly why Jesus says this. Because he says, gather it and let nothing be wasted. That word wasted literally means destroyed, ruined. Don't let it be wasted. The idea is, is hey, if it's, if it's left out, if it's not gathered and brought in, it's going to be wasted. Now, again, if you go back, and you don't have to, I'll read this for you. But you go back into Exodus chapter 12, you find in verse 10 that if any of the meat was left over till morning, what were they, what, what, what were they to do with it? Burn it. You were not allowed to take that with you. Why? Because it was significant. It was sacred. It was a, it was a, hey, it was a, it was a sacred time, event, commanded by God. It was not to be carried. It was specific for that moment. God had provided them, uh, again, a lamb, but the lamb was Christ. It was all foreshadowing Christ. And that was to be a significant moment. Now, when you come into the passage, again, hey, see, that sacred element is there. And this is so neat. This is so neat. Because the sacred element is there, but it's in a different setting. It's a sacred element that's, hey, it's there, but it's in a totally different setting. It's no longer down at the temple. It's out in the countryside. See, they're not, even, they're not even in Jerusalem. They're not even at church. And the sacred element is there that they've always celebrated, that they've had to commemorate. It's still there. Jesus is stretching it, uh, or he's stressing it, but it's in a totally different setting. Now, that's the first concept that you see. The other one is in verse 13, and it says, So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets. I had no idea of this, but there were two different baskets that were used in Jesus' day. One was a common basket used for all kinds of things. And then in the early church, there was another type of basket that were used for um, containing the bread for the communion in the early church. Guess what basket this is? That basket. So the bread is significant. It's communion bread. It's, It's sacred bread. And again, it was not to be wasted. And so what John does, and I want you to get a hold of this, what John does is he takes the sacred movement, the, the powerful, sacred, special hand of God that was celebrated as the Passover, and he launches that thing out of the significant, special, structured religious setting. He launches that thing out in the everyday lifestyle up, hey, in the area of Bethsaida, which is nowhere at all associated with Jerusalem. Okay? Now, I begin to find this interesting because... Uh, it seems like this is taking place all over the New Testament. I'm going to give you a couple examples of this. Not only in John's gospel, uh, I really found it significant in, in, the, in the book of Matthew. Uh, the day that Christ was crucified was the day that they sacrificed what? The Passover lamb, okay? The day they sacrificed the Passover lamb. And in fact, the day that, uh, in Matthew's account, chapter 27, and you can read it later, when Jesus died on the cross... Matthew writes in chapter 27, at that moment, and he lists a number of things happen. Earthquake takes place, temples, uh, uh, rocks are falling over. In the temple, the veil in the temple that separated the most holy place, which is where God was, from all the rest of Israel, was torn in two, okay? Which is not just some little curtain. This is like a six-inch long, heavy, huge curtain that separated. It was torn from top to bottom, which is a sign that God is out of that setting and he's out into the countryside. 
See, God is out of the formal. He's out of the structure. He's, it's not that, hey, he doesn't come to church anymore, but he does not reside here. He's out of that deal. He's out of this. See, all the details of that, all, all the religious structure details of this scene have changed, and it's out in the countryside. Now, I want to give you one more because uh, that's maybe a little bit confusing, but it becomes really clear by the time you come down to John chapter 2, which is actually back a couple pages. If you want to flip with me there in John chapter 2. John chapter 2 is, the, is a, a really familiar story. It's where Jesus changes the water into wine. Okay? Now, there's a, this has presented a number of problems, I guess, just to be quite honest, especially in the church of the Nazarene, <laughs> but, you know, because this is the first place we ever find in the Bible uh, Welch's grape juice, so, um, because it was the non-alcoholic wine. We all know that. Nazarene joke because you had to been there but nonetheless we we th- there's a number of significant things to talk about now get this there's a number of significant things to talk about chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 but the point that I want to talk to you about Jesus this is so powerful Jesus when he comes into this setting he's confronted with this issue by his mother okay you with me he's confronted by this issue with his mother and the problem is is that they've run out of wine they've run out of wine you read that in, the, in in these first 11 verses they run out of wine jesus is put in charge of it now listen to me jesus has got these servants together and i think that's around verse four or so at verse five his mother said to the servants do whatever he tells you and now they're standing there in front of jesus now jesus does not say hey we got this wine issue and uh, he's going to do this miracle of turning the water into wine he does not say go down to the kitchen and get some water pots he, does, he could have said a number of things. He could have said, hey, go get some empty wine skins from down in the cellar. He could have said anything. But I find it interesting that he chose specifically what? Ceremonial washing jars, which were reserved for the ceremonial purification rites of the Jews. It's a formal deal of being ceremonially clean. This is how they did that. Jesus specifically picks those out. He says, fill them with water. And then, of course, by the time you come down to this, uh, the end of the story, the water is turned into wine, which presents a huge problem. Because what happens when someone wants to become ceremonially clean? They go to the ceremonial washing jars, probably some senior adult, and they're going to lean over, and they're going to see that they don't find water, but they find wine. And who are they going to blame it on? The teen group. They always blame it on the teen group, okay? <laughs> because now the issue is, now get this, the significance of the miracle didn't have anything to do with the wine. The significance of the miracle is Jesus has broken. He's stopped. He's, he's shut down the old covenant system of being ceremonially clean, which was a sign, as you find out in verse 11, this was the first of his miraculous signs. It was a sign that we're no longer, no longer ceremonially clean by the washing of water. We're ceremonially clean by the blood of Jesus. It's a sign. And again, Jesus takes, this is powerful, he takes something that's sacred and special and ceremonial and specific and he takes that thing and he launches it and you find it right in the middle of a wedding where they want run out of wine. And what you find, I find this powerful, is throughout the whole entire book of John and it comes across very clearly in our passage, chapter 6, is that, hey, what's been take, what has taken place here, this is phenomenal, what takes place in that scene out there in the middle of a countryside where you have 5,000 people. Most scholars say that's probably just the men. Doesn't even include the women and children. I mean, it's in the countryside. It's just, see, there's, there's, they're, no around, they're not around a temple. There's probably no synagogue close. 
And he takes all the significant, the same kind of things that happens in the temple, he takes those and they happen out in the countryside. I don't know what that does to you and your framework. But what if, let me talk to teens first. Think about this. Think about this. What if you got up tomorrow morning and the way you begin to think about church on Sunday morning, you begin to think about high school? What if the thoughts that you had on Sunday morning about, oh, I wonder if God's is going to blow through the church this morning. If there's going to be impromptu testimonies. If testimonies are going to go so long in the worship service that pastor won't even get to preach. I wonder if you brought that idea over to high school. I wonder if God's is going to blow through my hall this morning. If there's going to be an impromptu testimony time where I can't even make it to class on time. Okay, let me give you another one. I wonder what God's going to say to his people this morning. I wonder what's going to happen, man, when the word is broken up in this morning and in the Sunday morning service and God moves. I wonder what happened if you brought that over into your job on your lunch break when you're eating your frank with beans and you got your Bible open and you begin to think, oh, I wonder what God's going to say as he opens up his word in that kind of a setting. See, the picture that I'm getting, the most phenomenal thing about the new covenant is God is not, see, God's not stuck here. See, that, and really, from a perspective of the New Testament, see, this hour in which we're in, and there are specific things that happen when the body comes together and the word is proclaimed, and I'm not taken away from that, but you understand that God is supposed to be just as real here as he is out there, and just as real out there as he is in here. That our, that our Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday experiences with him are to be just as fantastic and, and significant as our Sunday morning and Sunday night significance uh, deals with him. That you can have the toilet encounters, or however you want to talk about it. You can have the, uh, I worked at UPS, and this again, um, this is right before I worked at Sears. And they put me in the back of this semi-trailer, and I loaded these boxes, and high rate of speed, it's really hard work. You've done it. And it just wears you out. There was phenomenal times of God in my life in those kinds of settings. Wouldn't it be something if that's, if that's what it was supposed to be all along? That our, that our down at our job, Monday through Friday, is to be just the type of setting where he moves and acts and works as Sunday would be at church. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Nah, we'd rather keep him at church, wouldn't we? Wouldn't that be fantastic if the expectations we had for Sunday morning were the expectations we had Monday through Friday? Wouldn't it be fantastic if that's how we defined evangelism? Evangelism wasn't about memorizing a verse and spitting it off to somebody. It was, it was literally experiencing what we experience on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. That Sunday we come among the believers and we worship and we pray and we sing and we, wow. But see, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we get to do that in front of our entire world. That the significant special of things that we have for Sunday are not to be confined inside the walls on Sunday. They're to be blown out on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I believe that. Father, we love you this evening. I thank you for the truth of your word.